Very inspirational to have a trumpet fanfare right before you come up. That's good. I like that. Thank you to James for being here with us to play today and bless us so much. Just a couple quick things. Uh, if after our service is over, you're leaving and you're wanting to go towards the PopCon 436, you're going to probably need another route unless things change between now and then. They've got that area blocked off at Line Drive, so you can go around on Hunt Club or around the other way. Uh, but just a heads up for you as you're thinking about your ride home. Could be a little tricky getting out of here today, so maybe we'll just take our time and see what happens. All right. So a couple of things going on today. One is uh, that's a little different. As you see, the screen here is on. We're actually in the middle of all of our transitions and different things. We're, there's a couple details that we're getting settled. We don't normally put uh, the service on the screens in the front, but right now they're tied in a way with the balcony screens, which are actually quite important that we put the service on those. So for this week, we've got it on both of them. We'll see how we settle it out. It may, may turn out you like it, but we'll see. Um, there is one thing about it that you might notice. There's a little delay. Maybe you notice that. See if I uh, do that. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. So we may do that every now and then just for fun. Um, but that's, uh, that's what's going on there. So hopefully that doesn't distract you too much as we go on. Uh, kind of a crazy day for our family. We're, you know how it goes sometimes. You get spread out all over the place. Uh, Gable and Nathan are in Newfoundland. Uh, Alicia and Aaron are in Collegedale, and Ariel and I are here, so, so pray for Ariel as she's <laughs> home with Dad. But we're doing well so far. Uh, somebody's taking care of us for lunch, so we're covered. We should be good. Uh, no, it's, uh, we're having a good time, and uh, we'll get the whole family back together one of these days. But uh, that's how it is this time of year. A lot of things going on, different places. But I want to give you a little idea uh, of the schedule for the Sabbaths coming up. We're getting into fall now and, and uh, time to get focused again on a number of things. So what we're going to do is uh, the next three Sabbaths, we're doing a very short series called Believing. And it's going to be out of the book of John. Today we're going to focus on John chapter 9 and then chapter 10 next Sabbath and chapter 11, the Sabbath after that. And then we're going to get into our main series for the fall, the one that will start the beginning of September and run all the way down to Thanksgiving time. And we're going to be focused on, during that span, uh, the first five chapters in the book of Revelation. And we're going to spend the bulk of the time in chapters 2 and 3 that talk about the seven churches. And we're going to reflect on those descriptions and, and how they impact us and how they're related to us. And, and it seems like this is a, uh, a good... A good uh, a good series to also put together some small group studies for because there's a lot of discussion that can go on here. So if you want to be thinking about that and you want to get your group back together, we will write studies, uh, particularly for the weeks when we're dealing with the different of the seven churches. And uh, those will become available. What we'll do is the study before the Sabbath where we talk about that church. So the week you would study it would be before we came to church. We've done it both ways, but I think that'll work best for this one. So the first study will be available after the first Sabbath of September. So if you wanted to get your group together, 
It would start after the first Sabbath of September. We'll kick the series off, and then we'll have studies for at least the next uh, seven topics we do here. Now, now there is, that will run straight through until Thanksgiving, except for one Sabbath. And that Sabbath is September 17. And I just want to kind of give you a, a, a long-range look at that day, because that day, uh, Florida Hospital and AHS are putting on a very special Sabbath celebration that day for churches in the region um, related to uh, a celebration of Adventist Health Ministry heritage. It's been uh, 100, is it 150 years? It's something like that. Yeah, I think that's what it is. 150 years since we first got into uh, being involved very directly in health ministries. And uh, so that's being noted. And uh, there's going to be a special service held at uh, Calvary Assembly that day which is a church just off of I-4. And uh, if you want to be a part of that that day, and I encourage, I encourage all of you to consider that, uh, to go there for the service on that day. We'll have a lot more details as we go forward. But we're not going to completely shut down here. We're not going to have first service that day. We're going to handle it kind of like we do church retreat weekend uh, when we expect a lot of folks to be gone. So we'll have the bridge, we'll have second, and we'll also have third service that day. Uh, Bernie will speak at second. Pastor Steve's going to speak for third that day. So that day won't be part of the regular fall series. But other than that, uh, that's how fall will go. And that'll take us up to right around Thanksgiving time. It always seems like, oh, that's forever away until all of a sudden it's upon us. So uh, that's something you can plan on as you're thinking about the days ahead and what we'll be doing. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day and this chance to gather here and to open your word. We pray, Lord, that you will teach us from your word, that we will be wise in the things that matter, that we will learn discernment, that our eyes will be open and not closed. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in John chapter 9 today, and if you have your Bible, you can just open it up and follow along there. We'll also put the text up as we go along like we always do. But one of the interesting things about the book of John, you know when you're reading in the other Gospels, there's a lot of times where Jesus will tell parables and he will teach things through the stories he tells. The book of John really is pretty pretty slim on parables. It doesn't spend a lot of time telling stories that Jesus told. Rather what it does is it tells stories of what Jesus did and contained within those stories are the elements of the parable-type stories, the applications that come very directly out of the stories and what takes place. And John chapter 9 is just one of those kinds of stories. It's, it's fascinating in a number of ways, and, but one of the ways I think most significant, the whole chapter really is all about Jesus and all about believing in Jesus, yet Jesus only appears in the chapter at the very beginning and at the very end. The whole rest of the chapter is made up of this going back and forth between different people and specifically between this one man who has literally never seen Jesus yet becomes this powerful witness for what Jesus has done. We see it play out in this story and and as we get into this, we're going to pause a little bit at at the beginning and we're going to ask another question. So let's, let's read here in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. 
As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay. A very fascinating question that the disciples are asking. The problem is, what it demonstrates is the disciples, as they're walking along and living life and running into people in various situations and needs, are not so much inclined by nature to address the situation they find people in, but rather to stand back and pose theological questions related to people's lives. I want to tell you that's a danger for the church. Rather than engaging people where they are, it's a danger that we'll just stand back and pose interesting questions. Now this is an interesting question that they're asking, and there's a lot of theological context implied in this question, none more significant than the fact that if in fact this man was born blind, someone must have sinned for that to have happened. Because everybody knows you wouldn't just be born blind for no reason, right? So there's got to be some theological basis here, and it's got to somehow be connected with sinning or not sinning. And so they ask this very strange question. Did he sin, or did his parents sin? And the answer to that question is, is pretty significant, really, if you think about it. I mean, the whole notion that it could be possible to sin inside your mother's womb. There's an interesting thought, right? Or that somehow the sin of the parents is what makes this happen to their children. Now we're back into that argument that takes place in the Old Testament a lot. The father's sin and the the children's... The the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, that uh, we're suffering because of what our parents did. Well, they think they've asked a really interesting question. Because hardship isn't just going to come on us without somebody sinning, right? Well, listen to Jesus' answer. Verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. All right, think about that answer for a minute. I don't think you're going to like the the implications of this answer. Jesus is saying, this man wasn't born blind because he sinned. He was born blind so that a great work of God can be accomplished in his life. So here's what I want to ask you. Can you tell the difference between a blessing in your life and a curse in your life? I mean, we'd all like to think that something about our life would be a means by which the glory of God would be revealed to the world, right? That's what we say. That's what we say. Lord, take my life and make me a blessing. But our notion of what is a blessing in our life, I think when we really get down to it, kind of goes like this. A blessing is anything in my life that I like. And a curse is anything in my life that I don't. But if you take honestly what's happening here, what was the thing that was the greatest blessing in this man's life that allowed the Son of God to be revealed through him? It wasn't something he wanted. 
And so we see him in this story. He just pops into the story. And so for us, it's a happy story because we hear about a man that's blind and, and then he's healed and it goes on and it's wonderful. But we don't hear the part about the story of how he grew up a blind man, how he spent his child blind, how he begged every day to survive, how his life was a struggle. We only hear about this point going on. Yet, here's the thing. If he'd never been born blind, we'd never know anything about him. Because Jesus passed a man along the side of the road who'd been able to see since he was a child and nothing happened. It's not a story, is it? Is it possible that sometimes the incredible trials that come upon us that we want to call curses might in fact be the very things that God will use to reveal his glory? That's hard to embrace, isn't it? It's hard to amen that. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus does something amazing. The implications of this are huge, but you have to, you have to realize what's happening here to appreciate it. Verse 6, having said this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. All right, that's kind of a weird way for Jesus to do this, isn't it? I mean, we got plenty of stories, including stories of blind people, where Jesus just lays a hand on them and heals them, or where he doesn't even touch them and they're healed. Why in the world does he spit on the ground, make mud, and wipe it on the man's eyes? All right, Jesus is making a point here, and it's a rather overwhelming point, if you see it, that suggests that what's taking place with him is, in fact, power from the Creator God. Here's what's happening. The man was born blind. He didn't go blind. He wasn't able to see for a while, and an accident cost his sight, or a disease took away his sight. No, he was born without eyes that work. So from the very beginning of his life, his initial created state, he was unable to see. But Jesus is going to heal him, and how's he going to do it? He's going to do it by mimicking the original creation. Think about that. How did God create humans in the beginning. He fashioned them out of what? Out of the dirt. And because this is a situation that doesn't require just healing, it requires a recreation because eyes have to be put in this man that were never there. Jesus goes again to that which he used to create in the beginning. He takes dirt and with it he makes eyes. That's a pretty bold claim he's making, isn't it? 
And you'd miss that if you weren't looking for it. But he rubs the same substance with which he created man in the first place on the eyes of this man. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. All right. And again, this is great for us because the story goes, and the man went and he washed. But now let's put ourselves in the man's condition. You're already blind, and some guy who you're not sure of rubs mud on your blind eye sockets and then tells you, walk across town looking foolish with mud on your face and wash in the pool of Siloam. How often does God, rather than giving us what we want in the moment, create for us what seems to us to be an absurd scenario and send us somewhere else to get the fulfillment of the miracle he's promised in our life? And how often do we just flat refuse to go there because that's a ridiculous way to heal? Lord, do it the way I want or don't do it at all. It's kind of reminded of Naaman in this story, right? Go dip in the river seven times. Well, that's a stupid river. I'll go wash in a better river. It's not about that, is it? You go and you do what Jesus says. And so he goes. Verse 7, go, Jesus told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. The Bible doesn't let us into his mind right now, but that must have been an overwhelming experience. Because someone who's had sight and loses it knows what they've lost. But a person who's never seen it all in their life and suddenly gains sight, that must be overwhelming. He goes home seeing, it says. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, verse 8, asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. It's kind of funny how the story unfolds because nobody can believe he can see. And so he's walking around and he's like, hey, you look just like that blind guy. He said, I am that blind guy. No, come on. But you sure look just like him. So then they ask him, all right, verse 10, how then were your eyes open, they demanded. Verse 11, he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Now verse 12, this is great. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know. I've never seen him before. I don't have any idea. I might be able to pick out his voice. And herein we see part of the genius of what Jesus is doing in this story. He very intentionally does this whole healing, sends the man away, and then he goes out and people begin to quiz him about his experience. And it's his job now, kind of an unwilling job, but because everybody's asking him, to tell the story of what this man they've never seen has done for him. Does that feel familiar in any way? 
Maybe we got more in common with this guy than we think. Well, everybody doesn't know what to do with this. In verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Uh Uh-oh, here comes the problem. Verse 14. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Oh, dear. You know, why, why couldn't Jesus just say, hey, meet me here tomorrow and I'll take care of that? We got a problem now. Verse 15, Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. All right, kind of interesting now. This He's getting a lot of chances to tell his story. He's getting a little better at it. It's a little shorter, a little more succinct. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That ought to sting a little, right? How easy it is for us to fall into the trap that someone who isn't doing things the way we think they are doing them obviously can't be from God because they don't keep our rules. Now here's the thing about it. They thought the rules that they had laid out were God's rules, and therefore everybody's going to obey these rules. But what became obvious when Jesus got here? It became obvious they had made up a whole bunch of rules and piled those rules on people's backs in a way that would cause you to not have mercy on someone blind just because it was Sabbath. So much so are they set in this very narrow view of reality. Remember, this whole story is about being blind and gaining sight, but it's also about thinking you can see and becoming blind. They're so locked in their narrow vision that a great work is done, but all they can say is this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But to their credit, at least there was some division. Verse 16, the last part says, But others asked, How can a sinner do such a miraculous sign? So they were divided. So they're arguing amongst themselves. And then verse 17, Finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, almost as if the man ought to be ashamed that he let himself be healed on Sabbath. What do you have to say? You got healed on Sabbath. What's wrong with you? The man replied, He is a prophet. Do you see how the man's witness is beginning to grow? How is it you can see? Well, that guy called Jesus put mud on my eyes, and now I can see. It starts out with him simply telling the story of what Jesus has done. But not only at the beginning here has he now gained visual sight, he's beginning to also gain spiritual insight and vision. Because now, because such a miraculous work has been done in his life, he's being asked questions about Jesus. Well, he doesn't know that much about Jesus, but okay, well, I'll bet he's a prophet. 
verse 18. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Still not buying it. This has got to be a clever hoax. Do you see how when you are set against something at the beginning, even that which is obvious and before you will be impossible for you to see and admit? You see why it's so important for us to stay humble in our hearts? And think about it. If you were doing a hoax with this, you really messed it up. I mean, because the point of a hoax is you do it in a way that will make everybody like it. Why would you set up a hoax healing on Sabbath when it's going to make everybody mad? But if you're determined to not believe, you'll find something. Verse 19, is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now he can see? Very accusatory. As if they're in on the hoax. Verse 20, we know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. Okay, get ready. Not a stellar parenting moment coming here. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. That's a little cowardly, isn't it? You kind of might have hoped for a little better from mom and dad. And here's something I just want to say to you if you're a parent and you have children and they don't always make you look good in front of church people. That happens, you know, from the time they're very young till the time they're very old. Yeah, sometimes church people will get together and talk. I know, it happens. But please love your children more than you fear the talk of the church people. And don't let what they might be saying in the other room keep you from embracing your own flesh and blood. And even if their course has taken them far from God, do not be ashamed to admit they are your children and to pray for them and to embrace them whenever you see them. The, the father of the prodigal son who went away never disowned him. He just waited for him to come back. And as soon as he did, he embraced him, even when the others would have thought he was crazy. So don't do like they did. Don't so value your place in the church that you disown your own family. He's of age. Ask him. Verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. All right, they're having a hard time here because they can't just completely deny it. All the evidence says the man was born blind and now he sees. So they say, give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. 
How do they know that? Verse 25, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. That's your testimony. The world is full of people who will tell you all the reasons to not believe in God. It's ridiculous. It's foolish. You can't prove it. You can't this. You can't that. People who claim they believe in God are not righteous. Whether they're sinners or not, I don't know. What I do know is I was blind, and now I see. We talked about this when we talked about the experience of salvation. If you've experienced it, there isn't anybody who can tell you it's not real. If you haven't experienced it, there isn't anybody that can convince you it is. But if you were once blind, and now you see, what more testimony do you need than that? Then they asked him, verse 26, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. He's starting to get bold, isn't he? Do you see what happens to a witness? To one in whom the Spirit of God has moved and acted? They start at the beginning as just a confused person with a new outlook. But as the day goes by, as life goes by, we become transformed into powerful witnesses of our experience. I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Now comes the needling. Do you want to become his disciple too? <laughs> they didn't care for that. Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him. Don't you just love it when people are classy, right? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Okay. We've talked about this before, too. This is what is so dangerous about religious conservatism. You know, I've talked to you about this before, that there are many who would try to trap us as a people, as the Adventist church, into believing somehow that we are among the religious conservatives. Okay, well, maybe we have some conservative behaviors, and maybe we have some views that align there, but we must never allow ourselves to be trapped in someone else's description of what we are. The Bible is our only creed, right? We keep looking and we keep learning and we keep growing and we keep seeking to do what God tells us through his word and in our lives. We don't get caught in the games, you see, because here's the problem. Here's what the, the religious conservative mentality loves. They love to honor the greatness of the past. As Jesus said it, you build tombs for the prophets. 
yet you persecute the ones in your own day. See, that's the thing. That mindset is always happy to honor the faithfulness of the past, but never willing to be discerning in its own day. It's one thing to acknowledge the conclusions of those who came before, but to blindly honor those conclusions without confronting the issues of your own day is faithlessness in your own day. We're disciples of Moses. Somebody else told us he was good. As for this guy, we don't know what to do with him. Well, maybe open your eyes and see what he's doing instead of closing your eyes and refusing to believe. Verse 30, the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Oh, now he's becoming a theologian. Look at this. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Do you see the boldness, the holy boldness that comes into the life of someone who has been impacted and transformed by Jesus. He starts the day ignorant and unseeing. And by the end of the day, he's standing before the highest religious leaders of the land and saying, you guys don't have any idea what you're talking about. They didn't care for that either. And this is fascinating where this piece of the chapter goes. Verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Do you see what's so ironic here? They have gone back to the beginning of this chapter to where the disciples started. What was the question the disciples asked? Who sinned that he was born blind? But then they had their eyes opened through the work God did in him? Well, here's the Pharisees who started the day believing they could see and ended it saying, somebody had to have sinned for you to be born blind. They've gone back to where the story started. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? I love this answer. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. He's never seen Jesus. This is his first time. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Do you see how the story becomes a parable? Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, 
your guilt remains. It's a real rebuke to those who just pretend or who are more interested in maintaining an institutional notion or a very narrow set of understandings or or a strict list of rules at the expense of walking past someone that's blind and never helping. Jesus came into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Well, we're all born blind, aren't we? We're all born spiritually blind. But for the grace of Jesus who sees us beside the road, that is where we would stay for our whole lives. But in his grace, he sees us. And he recreates holiness in our hearts. It's as big a miracle as recreating eyes in someone born without. And we are born again by the Spirit into a righteous life. I wish it was always perfect. But born again nonetheless. Given eyes to see. If you will stay humble and keep your heart open, Jesus will lead you to where you need to be. Through his word, through friends, through the speaking, through the still, small voice in our lives, he will guide you. But if you don't want to go where Jesus sends you, your eyes won't get open. And if you're not willing to believe what he says, you'll stay blind. Let's let Jesus open our eyes so that we can see. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need the same miracles today. Open our eyes so that we can see. And keep us from closing our eyes when what we see is not what we want to believe. And give us the courage to believe that what we thought might be a curse might in fact be the way through which you reveal your glory to the world. May we be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.